Chapter 9, Part 2 of The Swiss Family Robinson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Swiss Family Robinson by Johann R. Wies. Chapter 9, Part 2. Next morning we quitted the farm, which we named Woodlands, after providing amply for the wants of the animals, sheep, goats, and poultry which we left there. Shortly afterward, on entering a wood, we found it tenanted by an enormous number of apes, who instantly assailed us with showers of fir-cones, uttering hideous and angry cries, and effectually checking our progress, until we put them to flight by a couple of shots, which not a little astonished their weak minds. Fritz picked up some of their missiles, and, showing them to me, I recognized the cone of the stone-pine. "'By all means gather some of these cones, boys,' said I. "'You will find that the kernel has a pleasant taste, like almonds, "'and from it we can, by pressing, obtain an excellent oil. "'Therefore I should like to carry some home with us.' "'A hill, which seemed to promise a good view from its summit, "'next attracted my notice, and on climbing it, "'we were more than repaid for the exertion "'by the extensive and beautiful prospect "'which lay spread before our eyes.' The situation altogether was so agreeable, that here also I resolved to make a settlement, to be visited occasionally, and, after resting a while, and talking the matter over, we set to work to build a cottage, such as we had lately finished at Woodlands. Our experience there enabled us to proceed quickly with the work, and in a few days the rustic abode was completed, and received, by earnest choice, the grand name of Prospect Hill." My chief object in undertaking this expedition had been to discover some tree from whose bark I could hope to make a useful light boat, or canoe. Hitherto I had met with none at all fit for my purpose, but, not despairing of success, I began, when the cottage was built, to examine carefully the surrounding woods, and, after considerable trouble, came upon two magnificent, tall, straight trees, the bark of which seemed something like that of the birch. Selecting one whose trunk was, to a great height, free from branches, we attached to one of the lower of the boughs the rope-ladder we had with us, and Fritz, ascending it, cut the bark through in a circle. I did the same at the foot of the tree, and then, from between the circle, we took a narrow, perpendicular slip of bark entirely out, so that we could introduce the proper tools by which gradually to loosen and raise the main part so as finally to separate it from the tree uninjured and entire. This we found possible because the bark was moist and flexible. Great care and exertion was necessary, as the bark became detached, to support it, until the hole was ready to be let gently down upon the grass. This seemed a great achievement, but our work was by no means ended, nor could we venture to desist from it until— while the material was soft and pliable, we had formed it into the shape we desired for the canoe. In order to do this I cut a long triangular piece out of each end of the roll, and, placing the sloping parts one over the other, I drew the ends into a pointed form, and secured them with pegs and glue. This successful proceeding had, however, widened the boat and made it too flat in the middle, so that it was necessary to put ropes round it, and tighten them until the proper shape was restored, before we could allow it to dry in the sun. 
This being all I could do without a greater variety of tools, I determined to complete my work in a more convenient situation, and forthwith dispatched Fritz and Jack with orders to bring the sledge, which now ran on wheels taken from gun-carriages, that the canoe might be transported direct to the vicinity of the harbour at Tentholm. During their absence I fortunately found some wood naturally curved, just suited for ribs to support and strengthen the sides of the boat. When the two lads returned with the sledge it was time to rest for the night, but with early dawn we were again busily at work. The sledge was loaded with the new boat, and everything else we could pack into it, and we turned our steps homeward, finding the greatest difficulty, however, in getting our vehicle through the woods. We crossed the bamboo swamp, where I cut a fine mast for my boat, and came at length to a small opening or defile in the ridge of rocks, where a little torrent rushed from its source down into the larger stream beyond. Here we determined to make a halt, in order to erect a great earth wall across the narrow gorge, which, being thickly planted with prickly pear, Indian fig, and every thorny bush we could find, would in time form an effectual barrier against the intrusion of wild beasts, the cliffs being, to the best of our belief, in every other part inaccessible. For our own convenience we retained a small winding path through this barrier, concealing and defending it with piles of branches and thorns, and also we contrived a light drawbridge over the stream, so that we rendered the pass altogether a very strong position, should we ever have to act on the defensive. This work occupied two days, and, continuing on our way, we were glad to rest at Falconhurst, before arriving, quite tired and worn out, at Tentholm. It took some time to recruit our strength after this long and fatiguing expedition, and then we vigorously resumed the task of finishing the canoe. The arrangements, I flattered myself, were carried out in a manner quite worthy of a shipbuilder. A mast, sails, and paddles were fitted, but my final touch, although I prized it highly and considered it a grand and original idea, would no doubt have excited only ridicule and contempt had it been seen by a naval man. My contrivance was this. I had a couple of large, air-tight bags made of the skins of the dogfish, well tarred and pitched, inflated, and made fast on each side of the boat, just above the level of the water. These floats, however much she might be loaded, would effectually prevent either the sinking or capsizing of my craft. I may as well relate in this place what I omitted at the time of its occurrence. During the rainy season our cow presented us with a bull-calf, and that there might never be any difficulty in managing him, I, at a very early age, pierced his nose, and placed a short stick in it, to be exchanged for a ring when he was old enough. The question now came to be who should be his master, and to what should we train him? "'Why not teach him,' said Fritz, "'to fight the wild animals, and defend us, like the fighting bulls of the Hottentots? That would be really useful.' "'I am sure I should much prefer a gentle bull to a fighting one,' exclaimed his mother. "'But do you mean to say tame oxen can be taught to act rationally on the defensive?' "'I can but repeat what I have heard or read,' replied I. "'As regards the race of Hottentots, who inhabit the south of Africa, among all sorts of wild and ferocious animals. The wealth of these people consists solely in their flocks and herds, 
and, for their protection, they train their bulls to act as guards. These courageous animals keep the rest from straying away, and when danger threatens, they give instant notice of it, drive the herd together in a mass, the calves and young cows being placed in the centre, around them the bulls and strong oxen make a formidable circle with their horned heads turned to the front, offering determined resistance to the fiercest foe. These fighting bulls will even sometimes rush with dreadful bellowing to meet the enemy, and, should it be a mighty lion or other strong and daring monster, sacrifice their own lives in defense of the herd. It is said that formerly, when Hottentot tribes made war on one another, it was not unusual to place a troop of these stout-hearted warriors in the van of the little army, when their heroism led to decisive victory on one side or the other. But, continued I, although I can see you are all delighted with my description of these fine warlike animals, I think we had better train this youngster to be a peaceable bull. Who is to have charge of him? Ernest thought it would be more amusing to train his monkey than a calf. Jack, with the buffalo and his hunting jackal, had quite enough on his hands. Fritz was content with the onager. Their mother was voted mistress of the old grey donkey, and I myself being superintendent-in-chief of the whole establishment of animals, there remained only little Franz, to whose special care the calf could be committed. "'What say you, my boy? Will you undertake to look after this little fellow?' "'Oh, yes, father,' he replied. "'Once you told me about a strong man. I think his name was Milo, and he had a tiny calf, and he used to carry it about everywhere. It grew bigger and bigger, but still he carried it often.' till at last he grew so strong that when it was quite a great big ox he could lift it as easily as ever, and so, you see, if I take care of our wee calf and teach it to do what I like, perhaps when it grows big I shall still be able to manage it, and then—oh, papa, do you think I might ride upon it?' I smiled at the child's simplicity and his funny application of the story of Milo of Cortona. "'The calf shall be yours, my boy. Make him as tame as you can, and we will see about letting you mount him some day. But remember, he will be a great big bull long before you are nearly a man. Now what will you call him?' "'Shall I call him Grumble, father? Hear what a low muttering noise he makes?' "'Grumble will do famously.' "'Grumble, grumble! Oh, it beats your buffalo's name hollow, Jack!' "'Not a bit,' said he. "'Why, you can't compare the two names. "'Fancy mother saying, "'Here comes Franz on Grumble, "'but Jack riding on the storm. "'Oh, it sounds sublime.' "'We named the two puppies Bruno and Fawn, "'and so ended this important domestic business. "'For two months we worked steadily at our salt cave "'in order to complete the necessary arrangement of partition walls "'so as to put the rooms and stalls for the animals "'in comfortable order for the next long rainy season, "'during which time, when other work would be at a standstill, "'we could carry on many minor details "'for the improvement of the abode. "'We levelled the floors first with clay, "'then spread gravel mixed with melted gypsum over that, "'producing a smooth, hard surface, "'which did very well for most of the apartments.' but I was ambitious of having one or two carpets, and set about making a kind of felt in the following way. I spread out a large piece of sailcloth, and covered it equally all over with a strong liquid made of glue and isinglass, which saturated it thoroughly. On it we then laid wool and hair from the sheep and goats, 
which had been carefully cleaned and prepared, and rolled and beat it until it adhered tolerably smoothly to the cloth. Finally it became, when perfectly dry, a covering for the floor of our sitting-room, by no means to be despised. One morning, just after these labours at the salt-cave were completed, happening to awake unusually early, I turned my thoughts, as I lay waiting for sunrise, to considering what length of time we had now passed on this coast, and discovered to my surprise that the very next day would be the anniversary of our escape from the wreck. My heart swelled with gratitude to the gracious God who had then granted us deliverance, and ever since had loaded us with benefits, and I resolved to set to-morrow apart as a day of thanksgiving, in joyful celebration of the occasion. My mind was full of indefinite plans when I rose, and the day's work began as usual. I took care that everything should be cleaned, cleared, and set in order both outside and inside our dwelling, none, however, suspecting that there was any particular object in view. Other more private preparations I also made for the next day. At supper I made the coming event known to the assembled family. "'Good people, do you know that to-morrow is a very great and important day? We shall have to keep it in honour of our merciful escape to this land, and call it Thanksgiving Day.' Every one was surprised to hear that we had already been twelve months in the country. Indeed, my wife believed I might be mistaken, until I showed her how I had calculated regularly, ever since the thirty-first of January, on which day we were wrecked, by marking off in my almanac the Sundays, as they arrived for the remaining eleven months of the year. Since then, I added, I have counted thirty-one days. This is the first of February. We landed on the second, Therefore to-morrow is the anniversary of the day of our escape. As my bookseller has not sent me an almanac for the present year, we must henceforth reckon for ourselves. "'Oh, that will be good fun for us,' said Ernest. "'We must have a long stick, like Robinson Crusoe, and cut a notch in it every day, and count them up every now and then, to see how the weeks and months and years go by.' "'That is all very well if you know for certain the number of days in each month and in the year.' "'What do you say, Ernest?' "'The year contains three hundred sixty-five days, five hours, forty-eight minutes, and forty-five seconds,' returned he promptly. "'Perfectly correct,' said I, smiling. "'But you would get in a mess with those spare hours, minutes, and seconds in a year or two, wouldn't you?' "'Not at all. Every four years I would add them all together, make a day, stick it into February, and call that year Leap Year.' "'Well done, Professor Ernest. We must elect you astronomer-royal in this our kingdom, and let you superintend and regulate everything connected with the lapse of time, clocks and watches included.' Before they went to sleep I could hear my boys whispering among themselves about father's mysterious allusions to next day's festival and rejoicings, but I offered no explanations, and went to sleep, little guessing that the rogues had laid a counterplot far more surprising than my simple plan for their diversion. Nothing less than roar of artillery startled me from sleep at daybreak next morning. I sprang up, and found my wife as much alarmed as I was by the noise, otherwise I should have been inclined to believe it fancy. "'Fritz, dress quickly and come with me,' cried I, turning to his hammock. Lo, it was empty, neither he nor Jack were to be seen.' 
Altogether bewildered, I was hastily dressing when their voices were heard, and they rushed in, shouting, "'Hurrah! Didn't we rouse you with a right good thundering salute?' But, perceiving at a glance that we had been seriously alarmed, Fritz hastened to apologize for the thoughtless way in which they had sought to do honour to the day of thanksgiving, without considering that an unexpected cannon-shot would startle us unpleasantly from our slumbers. We readily forgave the authors of our alarm, in consideration of the good intention which had prompted the deed, and, satisfied that the day had at least been duly inaugurated, we all went quietly to breakfast. Afterward we sat together for a long time, enjoying the calm beauty of the morning, and talking of all that had taken place on the memorable days of the storm a year ago, for I desired that the awful events of that time should live in the remembrance of my children, with a deepening sense of gratitude for our deliverance. Therefore I read aloud passages from my journal, as well as many beautiful verses from the Psalms, expressive of joyful praise and thanksgiving, so that even the youngest among us was impressed and solemnized at the recollections of escape from a terrible death, and also led to bless and praise the name of the Lord our Deliverer. Dinner followed shortly after this happy service, and I then announced for the afternoon a grand display of athletic sports, in which I and my wife were to be spectators and judges. "'Father, what a grand idea! Oh, how jolly! Are we to run races? And prizes! Will there be prizes, father?' "'The judges offer prizes for competition in every sort of manly exercise,' replied I. "'Shooting, running, riding, leaping, climbing, swimming. We will have an exhibition of your skill in all. Now for it!' "'Trumpeters, sound for the opening of the lists!' Uttering these last words in a stentorian voice, and wildly waving my arms toward a shady spot, where the ducks and geese were quietly resting, had the absurd effect I intended. Up they all started in a fright, gabbling and quacking loudly, to the infinite amusement of the children, who began to bustle about in eager preparations for the contest, and begging to know with what they were to begin.' Let us have shooting first, and the rest when the heat of the day declines. Here is a mark I have got ready for you, said I, producing a board roughly shaped like a kangaroo, and of about the size of one. This target was admired, but Jack could not rest satisfied till he had added ears, and a long leather strap for the tail. It was then fixed in the attitude most characteristic of the creature, and the distance for firing measured off. Each of the three competitors was to fire twice. Fritz hit the kangaroo's head each time. Ernest hit the body once, and Jack, by a lucky chance, shot the ears clean away from the head, which feet raised a shout of laughter. A second trial with pistols ensued, in which Fritz again came off victor. Then, desiring the competitors to load with small shot, I threw a little board as high as I possibly could up in the air, each in turn aiming at, and endeavouring to hit it before it touched the ground. In this I found to my surprise that the sedate Ernest succeeded quite as well as his more impetuous brother Fritz. As for Jack, his flying board escaped wholly uninjured. After this followed archery, which I liked to encourage, foreseeing that a time might come when ammunition would fail, and in this practice I saw with pleasure that my elder sons were really skilful, 
while even little Franz acquitted himself well. A pause ensued, and then I started a running match. Fritz, Ernest, and Jack were to run to Falkenhurst by the most direct path. The first to reach the tree was to bring me, in proof of his success, a penknife I had accidentally left on the table in my sleeping-room. At a given signal away went the racers in fine style. Fritz and Jack, putting forth all their powers, took the lead at once, running in advance of Ernest, who started at a good steady pace, which I predicted he would be better able to maintain than such a furious rate as his brother's. But long before we expected to see them back, a tremendous noise of galloping caused us to look with surprise toward the bridge, and Jack made his appearance, thundering along on his buffalo, with the onager and the donkey tearing after him riderless, and the whole party in the wildest spirits. Hullo! cried I. "'What sort of foot-race do you call this, Master Jack?' He shouted merrily as he dashed up to us, then flinging himself off and saluting us in a playful way. I very soon saw, said he, that I hadn't a chance, so, renouncing all idea of the prize, I caught Storm and made him gallop home with me, to be in time to see the others come puffing in. Lightfoot and old Grizzle chose to join me. I never invited them. By and by the other boys arrived, Ernest holding up the knife in token of being the winner, and after hearing all particulars about the running, and that he had reached Falconhurst two minutes before Fritz, we proceeded to test the climbing powers of the youthful athletes. In this exercise Jack performed wonders. He ascended with remarkable agility the highest palms whose stems he could clasp. And when he put on his shark-skin buskins, which enabled him to take firm hold of larger trees, he played antics like a squirrel or a monkey, peeping and grinning at us, at first on one side of the stem, and then on the other, in a most diverting way. Fritz and Ernest climbed well, but could not come near the grace and skill of their active and lively young brother. Riding followed, and marvellous feats were performed, Fritz and Jack proving themselves very equal in their management of their different steeds. I thought riding was over when little Franz appeared from the stable in the cave, leading young Grumble, the bull-calf, with a neat saddle of kangaroo-hide, and a bridle passed through his nose-ring. The child saluted us with a pretty little air of confidence, exclaiming, "'Now, most learned judges, prepare to see something quite new and wonderful. The great bull-tamer, Milo of Cortona, desires the honour of exhibiting before you.' Then, taking a whip, and holding the end of a long cord, he made the animal, at the word of command, walk, trot, and gallop in a circle round him. He afterward mounted, and showed off Grumble's somewhat awkward paces. The sports were concluded by swimming matches, and the competitors found a plunge in salt water very refreshing, after their varied exertions. Fritz showed himself a master in the art. At home in the element, no moment betokened either exertion or weariness. Ernest exhibited too much anxiety and effort, while Jack was far too violent and hasty, and soon became exhausted. Franz gave token of future skill. By this time, as it was getting late, we returned to our dwelling, the mother having preceded us in order to make arrangements for the ceremony of prize-giving. We found her seated in great state, with the prizes set out by her side. 
the boys marched in pretending to play various instruments in imitation of a band, and then all four, bowing respectfully, stood before her, like the victors in a tournament of old, awaiting the reward of valour from the Queen of Beauty, which she bestowed with a few words of praise and encouragement. Fritz, to his immense delight, received, as the prize for shooting and swimming, a splendid double-barreled rifle and a beautiful hunting-knife. To Ernest, as winner of the running match, was given a handsome gold watch. For climbing and riding Jack had a pair of silver-plated spurs and a riding-whip, both of which gave him extraordinary pleasure. Franz received a pair of stirrups and a driving-whip made of rhinoceros hide, which we thought would be of use to him in the character of bull-trainer. When the ceremony was supposed to be over, I advanced, and solemnly presented to my wife a lovely work-box, filled with every imaginable requirement for a lady's work-table, which she accepted with equal surprise and delight. The whole entertainment afforded the boys such intense pleasure, and their spirits rose to such a pitch, that nothing would serve them but another salvo of artillery, in order to close with befitting dignity and honour so great a day." They gave me no peace till they had leave to squander some gunpowder, and then at last, their excited feelings seeming relieved, we were able to sit down to supper. Shortly afterward we joined in family worship, and retired to rest. Soon after the great festival of our grand Thanksgiving Day, I recollected that it was now the time when, the figs at Falconhurst being ripe, immense flocks of ortolans and wild pigeons were attracted thither, and as we had found those preserved last year of the greatest use among our stores of winter provisions, I would not miss the opportunity of renewing our stock, and therefore, laying aside the building work, we removed with all speed to our home in the tree, where sure enough we found the first detachment of the birds already busy with the fruit. In order to spare ammunition I resolved to concoct a strong sort of bird-lime, of which I had read in some account of the Palm Islanders, who make it of fresh caoutchouc mixed with oil, and of so good a quality that it has been known to catch even peacocks and turkeys. Fritz and Jack were therefore dispatched to collect some fresh caoutchouc from the trees, and as this involved a good gallop on Storm and Lightfoot, they, nothing loath, set off. They took a supply of calabashes, in which to bring the gum, and we found it high time to manufacture a fresh stock of these useful vessels. I was beginning to propose an expedition to the gourd-tree wood, regretting the time it would take to go such a distance, when my wife reminded me of her plantation near the potato-field. There, to our joy, we found that all the plants were flourishing, and crops of gourds and pumpkins, in all stages of ripeness, covered the ground. Selecting a great number suited to our purpose, we hastened home, and began the manufacture of basins, dishes, plates, flasks, and spoons of all sorts and sizes, with even greater success than before. When the riders returned with the caoutchouc, they brought several novelties besides. A crane, for example, shot by Fritz, and an animal which they called a marmot, but which to me seemed much more like a badger. Aniseed? turpentine, and waxberries for candles they had also collected, and a curious root which they introduced by the name of the monkey-plant. "'And pray, wherefore monkey-plant, may I ask?' "'Well, for this reason, father,' answered Fritz, 
we came upon an open space in the forest near woodlands, and perceived a troop of monkeys, apparently engaged, as Jack said, in cultivating the soil. Being curious to make out what they were at, we tied up the dogs as well as Storm and Lightfoot, and crept near enough to see that the apes were most industriously grubbing up and eating roots. This they did in a way that nearly choked us with laughter, for when the root was rather hard to pull up, and the leaves were torn off, they seized it firmly in their teeth, and flung themselves fairly heels over head in the most ludicrous fashion you ever saw, and up came the root, unable to resist the leverage. Of course we wanted to see what this dainty morsel was like, so we loosed the dogs, and the apes cleared out double-quick, leaving plenty of the roots about. We tasted them, and thought them very nice. Will you try one? The plant was quite new to me, but I imagined it might be what is called in China ginseng, and there prized and valued beyond everything. The children being curious to hear more about this ginseng, I continued. In China it is considered so strengthening and wholesome that it is used as a sort of universal medicine, being supposed to prolong human life. The emperor alone has the right to permit it to be gathered, and guards are placed round land where it grows. Ginseng is to be found in Tartary, and has lately been discovered in Canada. It is cultivated in Pennsylvania, because the Americans introduce it secretly into China as smuggled merchandise. Fritz then continued. After this we went on to woodlands, but mercy on us what a confusion the place was in! Everything smashed or torn, and covered with mud and dirt, the fowls terrified, the sheep and goats scattered, the contents of the rooms dashed about as if a whirlwind had swept through the house. "'What?' I exclaimed, while my wife looked horrified at the news, conjuring up in her imagination hordes of savages who would soon come and lay waste Falconhurst and Tentholm as well as Woodlands. "'How can that have happened? Did you discover the authors of all this mischief?' "'Oh,' said Jack, "'it was easy to see that those dreadful monkeys had done it all. First, they must have got into the yards and sheds, and hunted the fowls and creatures about, and then, I dare say, the cunning rascals put a little monkey in at some small opening, and bid him unfasten the shutters. You know what nimble fingers they have.' Then, of course, the whole posse of them swarmed into our nice tidy cottage, and skylarked with every single thing they could lay paws on, till perhaps they got hungry all at once, and bethought them of the ginseng, as you call it, out in the woods yonder, where we found them so busy refreshing themselves, the mischievous villains. While we were gazing at all this ruin in a sort of bewilderment, pursued Fritz, we heard a sound of rushing wings and strange ringing cries, as of multitudes of birds passing high above us, and looking up we perceived them flying quickly in a wedge-shaped flock at a great height in the air. They began gradually to descend, taking the direction of the lake, and separated into a number of small detachments, which followed in a long straight line, and at a slower rate, the movements of the leaders, who appeared to be examining the neighbourhood. We could now see what large birds they must be, but dared not show ourselves or follow them, lest they should take alarm. Presently, and with one accord, they quickened their motion, just as if the band had begun to play a quick march after a slow one, and rapidly descended to earth in a variety of lively ways, and near enough for us to see that they must be cranes. Some alighted at once, while others hovered sportively over them. 
many darted to the ground, and, just touching it, would soar again upward with a strong but somewhat heavy flight. After gambling in this way for a time, the whole multitude, as though at the word of command, alighted on the rice-fields, and began to feast on the fresh grain. We thought now was our time to get a shot at the cranes, and cautiously approached, but they were too cunning to let themselves be surprised, and we came unexpectedly upon their outposts or sentinels, who instantly sprang into the air, uttering loud trumpet-like cries, upon which the whole flock arose, and followed them with a rush like a sudden squall of wind. We were quite startled, and it was useless to attempt a shot, but, unwilling to miss the chance of securing at least one of the birds, I hastily unhooded my eagle and threw him into the air. With a piercing cry he soared away high above them, then shot downward like an arrow, causing wild confusion among the cranes. The one which the eagle attacked sought to defend itself. A struggle followed, and they came together to the ground not far from where we stood. Hastening forward, to my grief I found the beautiful crane already dead. The eagle, luckily unhurt, was rewarded with a small pigeon from my game-bag. After this we went back to Woodlands, got some turpentine and a bag of rice, and set off for home. Fritz's interesting story being ended, and supper ready, we made trial of the new roots, and found them very palatable, either boiled or stewed. The monkey plant, however, if it really proved to be the ginseng of the Chinese, would require to be used with caution, being of an aromatic and heating nature. We resolved to transplant a supply of both roots to our kitchen garden. End of chapter 9, part 2, read by Kara Schallenberg, on July 18, 2009, in San Diego, California.